0: (laughs) Well, the last couple of weeks we've been working through a series of sermons called What's a Pastor to Do? And the first week we talked about the need for the pastor to be able to shepherd his flock by protecting them through a a teaching of God's Word. That one of the primary functions that a pastor has is to equip his flock to be able to know and understand, and to be able to feed themselves on God's Word, and not just simply to be able to uh, take it from secondary sources, uh, but to be able to study the Word of God for themselves. In the second week, we talked very much about the need for a pastor to protect his flock, because there's a lot of fringe ideas and a lot of a lot of notions out there in the culture that would like to grab hold of us, and to be able to use that inroad as a, as a wedge of division uh, amongst us. So we need to be able to have pastors that will be able to uh, ferret out those cultural and theological errors, and to be able to protect the flock and keep them uh, on the straight and narrow. Uh, last week we talked about the, the need for a pastor to feel that sense of calling from God, that, uh, that uh, that burden, that lift of weight that's on the shoulders of a pastor, uh, to be able to minister care, and to be able to teach the Word, and to be able to have that inner desire to want to be able to respond to that call, and to have that affirmed uh, by a uh, a conscientious and uh, congregation uh, that is able to sense that calling and to be able to affirm it uh, by their vote, uh, which you did so unanimously uh, for Pastor Nick. Uh, and back in March, and so the, today we're going to talk about one uh, of the uh, uh, built-in safety valves that we have here in the in the in the in the New Testament. Uh, we know uh, that the church is God's proven vehicle uh, for reaching the world today. Uh, it is uh, upon this church, He said, "I will, upon this rock I will build my church." and the rock of uh, uh, apostolic teaching and the, uh, the rock of apostolic authority based on uh, the Word of God. But we also know that having that church led by one man as conscientious and as devoted to God as he can be doesn't always prove to be the necessary safeguards uh, that, are, 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 that need to be in place in order to prevent the church from straying or becoming divided. And so what uh, God in his almighty wisdom and Paul through his uh, fellowship with the Holy Spirit has provided is with a group of other men that come alongside this pastor and they co-labor together and they have a, a plurality of leadership. Uh, so that there's built-in safeguards, there's built-in checks and balances uh, so that one idea doesn't become predominant and become divisive. There is a, uh, there's wisdom in the collection of these different thoughts and ideas uh, that these particular co-leaders bring. Uh, they come with different names. Uh, they come with uh, the name of elder. Uh, they come with pastor. They come with the name of overseer. They come sometimes even called, some translations label it bishop. And next week we're gonna talk about these different names because these different names reflect different roles that these particular leaders have. But Paul, in his epistle to Titus and to Timothy, made very clear uh, that, that, that we, we have a set of criteria that we use in order to determine who is the, the one that God is calling in, in order to be an elder. So it's not just simply a wishful thinking uh, it's not lucky dipping. It's not. Uh, we don't, I, I know that drawing straws or casting the, the jot and the tittle worked in the Old Testament and early in the New Testament, but God has given us His Spirit to be able to discern uh, from His Word uh, what is what. Uh, <laughs> that flash threw me off there. Uh, what what is uh, necessary for us to be able to consider? You see, ladies and gentlemen, of all these characteristics. Of all these characteristics, there's only one characteristic that has something to do with a skill or an ability. The rest of the characteristics that Paul has in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the, uh, almost all of them are, are, are character reflections. What kind of a person is this person? Not what this person does, but what kind of a person is this person? Because we know that character is what God sees on the inside, And when we see some of that being reflected on the outside, we call that integrity. Integrity means that the parts all fit together to make a a beautiful whole. And when a person's behavior in the community of believers and in the community at large uh, is, is integrated in such a way that it reflects the very image of Jesus, then we say that that person has integrity because it's lined up with the character on the inside. Now, when Jesus spoke, he said this, but it's not what goes inside of man. So, uh, uh, you know, this afternoon when we go back after this, uh, lecture, uh, this uh, worship service is over and we start uh, putting pancakes and sausage and, and uh, scrambled eggs and all the different things that come with it, we start putting those things into our mouth. Jesus said, it may harm us, <laughs> but it, it, it is not what goes into us that is the, uh, the reflection, but what comes out of our mouths. It's what comes our speech that reflects character. Jesus said this in, in Luke. He said, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you have to understand that character is going to eventually unavoidably be uh, bubble up in terms of a person's behavior and his speech. It's, it's impossible for that not to happen. Because who you are on the inside will be reflected about who you are on the outside. Remember when uh, Samuel was given the charge to uh, find the successor to Saul, and he went to uh, um, the household and he found all of David's brothers, and he said, this one? No, Lord. Lord said, no. This one, this one, this one, this one. And he finally asked him, he said, is there any more? And he said, well, I got the runt of the litter. He's out taking care of the sheep, and uh, we'll bring them in. And he was a good-looking lad, uh, young, and, and uh, Samuel put his hand over him, and, and the Lord said, it is he, because I do not judge on the outside. God judges what? The inside. God judges the heart. And so we have to understand that character matters more to God than anything else in choosing leaders in the church. And so we have in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have a list of character flaws, uh, character qualities, not flaws, uh, character qualities uh, that I would like you to turn to. I think it's, uh, it's I don't know what page it's on. I have my post it note from the page from the sermon before. What is it? 1847, I think, is somewhere in that range. 1847 in the Pew Bible. In 1 Timothy 3, let's read just the first first seven verses together. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his desire on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And so we find here in these short seven verses 14 character qualities that are going to be uh, the mark of a godly leader, a godly leader. Now on May 23rd in the evening, uh, we are having our annual meeting, and uh, it is uh, an opportunity for us to be able to uh, look at the recommendations that flow from the nominating committee and the elders uh, for new elders in our church, and we have up to four positions available, and we are going to recommend candidates that we feel have uh, met these criteria. And I'm going to go through them today, and I want you to kind of develop in your own head or even on a piece of paper a kind of a checklist so that you can compare uh, these, uh, uh, these character qualities with the elders. Now you have to understand that the character that we have here is unexceptional. Now let me explain that because you're not looking for somebody whose, whose character is uh, not, not, not worthy of notice. But unexceptional in the sense that the character qualities of, a, of an elder or overseer or pastor, uh, all three of these words are interchangeable, the character qualities are not exceptional in the sense that they push the elder into a different ca- classification of Christian. All but one of these qualifications, and maybe another one, uh, is, are, are, are available and commanded of all, all Christians. We're all commanded to be hospitable. We're all commanded to be temperate. We're all committed to be faithful to our spouses if God has called us to marriage. All of these things, all of these things that the scriptures have for an elder is that they're they're not not different. They don't put us into a different category. There aren't two tiers of Christians in the church. There's the leaders, which I'll never be because they're up there someplace. But they're they're a different degree. Their walk with the Lord, their degree of Christlikeness should be evident in such a way that we are able to observe it. And that's what makes the elder uh, unexceptional. It is that it's, it's not that you can't become like us and, and Paul, Paul is saying as, I see, as you see Christ in me, follow me. He, he deliberately portrayed himself as an example to the flock. And an elder, leader, pastor should be open enough to be able to say, look at my life. Look at my life. Look at the way that Christ shapes my life. And if you see anything in me that you would like to try to do in order to become like Christ, do it. So it's not like they're different than you. We walk on two legs and eat food with forks, and we do all sorts of things that you guys do. That's not the point. The point that there isn't a separate category for leader, and then there's a separate category for everybody else. So let's take a look at this. The first thing that Paul says is he mentions this and, uh, and there's been some confusion about the placement of this statement. The NIV places it at the beginning of the passage connected with these uh, set of character qualities. Other people think it relates to chapter 2, which we will talk about in a few weeks. Uh, but uh, chapter 2, uh, and I feel like this, this particular, I agree with the NIV, this particular phrasing should go with this particular passage. Here is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to pay attention to this because Paul is trying to to emphasize one part of it and not necessarily the other. He said it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing if uh, you are in this congregation and you set your heart on being a leader because it is a noble task. The emphasis here is not on the person's desire, but the emphasis here is on the nobility of the calling. And that's what Paul wants to emphasize here, is the nobility of the calling. And so he says there are three components uh, to a call to leadership. One, as uh, I mentioned before, is this, uh, this unscratchable itch. I- I'm thinking of the, uh, uh, Fred and Jeannie over here. Weren- weren't you guys part of our congregation for a lot of years? Yes. And God put an itch somewhere that couldn't be scratched in Madison. Or he put an itch someplace that couldn't be scratched in the United States. You see, God put an itch on them that says we need to go to Ethiopia. It was a burden, it was a calling, it was a ministry that they began to feel this, this, I I, I just can't get away from it. It's somewhere back there, but I can't can't find the pole, I can't get somebody, those back scratchers don't quite reach it. It was only answerable, it was only addressed, it was only relieved by their sense of desire to go. And you see, those two things have to work together. And then the congregation affirms that by the conscientious scrutiny to make sure that we send over candidates that are reflective of the very image of Jesus. You see, all three of these things have to work together. And you play a role, they play a role, and God plays a role. All three of them work together. So let's take a look at these character qualities. I've boldened them in such a way that you should be able to follow along. Uh, the first one is that he is above reproach. Now that means, you know, I don't want to use this illustration because it sometimes is confusing. Slippery, you know, you can't pin them down. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about something that is uh, uh, obviously got so many bumps and hooks on it in terms of character qualities, that it disqualifies him, obviously, from the task of being a leader. He needs to be above reproach. There's no no character hooks that are obvious to the congregation. These things necessarily would disqualify somebody in order to be an an elder in the church. And so he needs to be above reproach. Somebody cannot bring a charge against him that said that... uh, um, I value, I, well, we'll talk about the, the last characteristic, is reputation in the community. But we talk about this next one, about he needs to be the husband of one wife, of but one wife. Now, this has gotten a lot of attention uh, because we don't know what it means. Uh, if it was, uh, he, he needs to be married, uh, then Jesus and Paul are disqualified because those, those two guys were single. And they never were married. So they, uh, they're not disqualifying uh, single individuals from this. Uh, how about a person who was married faithfully to his wife? Uh, his wife dies and he remarries. Is he, is he also now uh, the, the husband of two wives? No, that's not the case. There's no, if what's permitted in the scriptures is allowed, then uh, we certainly can't disqualify that. We're not necessarily talking about a divorced person here. But we are talking about a person uh, uh, Don Carson, a noted scholar at Trinity and New Testament theology, says that he believes that they were talking about polygamous relationships. But I don't believe that there was enough evidence of polygamy in the New Testament church or in, in the, the Roman and Jewish cultures to be able to warrant such a prohibition. And I believe that Paul is talking about here to Timothy to make sure that he is a one-woman man that if a person is in a relationship with a woman that it is a loving, faithful, monogamous relationship and that there isn't any hint of any kind of sexual impropriety or immorality in that relationship. Now there are a lot of other things that a husband can do to a wife that are are very, very cruel and, and harmful, but this one particularly here is the very one that says that this is unfaithfulness is what breaks the marriage vows, and unfaithfulness uh, is one that we will not permit to be a leader in the church. Marital, un- marital faithfulness. The, second, uh, the, the third, fourth, and fifth are all kind of related together. The third, fourth, and fifth are all kind of bundled together, and I'm going to explain them as a group, because I've put them under the heading of self-mastery. They need to be temperate, balanced. There's not, there doesn't mean to be extremes. They need to be stable. And this is a, a sober is different than sobriety here. Sober is serious thinking kind of an individual. Self-controlled is sensible and prudent. Respectable means that he is uh, uh, honored and dignified uh, not only in the church but in the community. Those are the three that talk about self-mastery. Now here is a, a, a character quality that is supposed to be available to all Christians. For example, in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Hebrews 13, uh, 1 Peter 4, all Christians are admonished to be hospitable. Hospita- hospitality is defined as a love of strangers. It's the ability in the first century church to take itinerant preachers and travelers and to be able to uh, put them up and to be hospitable, opening up your home and to be able to have them in for meals while they are traveling. Now that's supposed to be a, a character quality of everybody, but it's particularly true of elders. And in our culture it's not only just simply to traveling people uh, when we have missionaries that return to open up our homes for them um, if we or provide places for them to have some, uh, some uh, privacy and some shelter from Uh, From a busy schedule, but it also refers to people who are lonely or alone. If we have people in our church who are legitimate widows, we need to be attentive to uh, uh, their needs and to to invite them into our homes and treat them as family. That's particularly true of elders. Now we just had six character qualities and the seventh one is the one thing that elders are to do that the rest of Christians are not called to do per se. And that is that an elder needs to be able to teach. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it is not the title. It's not the office. It's not the calling that gives the person the authority in the church. It's their ability to handle and know and teach and communicate God's word to the flock that gives them that authority. And so an elder needs to be preeminently knowledgeable about God's Word and have a life that's reflected in an attitude of obedience and submission to God's Word. Because not only in Timothy do they talk about teaching, but also in Titus they talk about it using the God's Word for instruction, for counsel, and for uh, discipline and correction. And so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when you sit down with 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 an elder... Uh, you should not only be able to understand that the counsel that you're getting is from God's word, but you oftentimes will actually have the elder use God's word to give you direction and guidance. And that's what they're there for. That's what their, their role is, to be able to use God's word to instruct and guide you. And so we, we have to have men who are able to communicate, not just simply from here, not just in ABFs, but in small groups and on one-on-one settings. They need to have, you need to have men who, whose lives bubble up God's word in their obvious communication and their helping and encouraging the saints. It's an ability to teach. That's the one character, that's the one gift skill that's mentioned in this passage. The next one is the use of alcohol. Now, the actual uh, Greek phraseology means beside wine or lingering with the cup. I love that expression. Doesn't it it kind of tell you exactly what they're looking for? It's a a person who lingers around the cup. It's the person who really, uh, and I think in modern terms, gets every once in a while gets a little tipsy, enjoys the buzz. See, personally, and I, I, don't, I don't espouse this for, uh, for people, that's not, I, I don't find it in the scriptures, but uh, I, I, I personally have chosen to abstain. And I actually chose to abstain before I became a Christian. When, and I was a high school guidance counselor, and uh, I was sitting in my office doing some uh, follow-up with a student of mine who had broken our school guide, uh, alcohol and drug abuse policy, and we had a follow-up conversation And we were talking in my office, and he said, uh, you drink, don't you? And I said, well, I'm down to a glass of wine maybe twice a week with my dinner. And he said, see? And I looked at him, and I said to him, I said, you mean to tell me that you're going to excuse your excess because I can justify my moderation? And I told him, I said, if I quit, will you quit? And he looked at me with this wide-eyed, I'm not so sure I want to go there. (laughs) But I did quit. I did quit. And it gave me a tremendous credibility in my office. We were at an institute uh, seminar, an all-day seminar for guidance counselors on on the dangers of teen alcoholism, because uh, teens can become alcoholics five times faster than adults. And so early diagnosis of teen alcohol abuse and use is very significant in in the high school setting. So we went to a seminar all day uh, to learn about uh, about symptoms and signals and how to treat, et cetera, et cetera. And I came back, and our our office was in a U-shape, and the kids all had to go through this doorway in order to get to the counselors, and on the doorway was a note plastered there by somebody from the office that said, happy hour at such and such beginning at 5.00. And I thought, I went into my boss, and I said, you know, there's something ironic that you would send us to a seminar to help prevent teen alcohol abuse, and then on the door where every kid that has to go into our office needs to pass, there's a promotion for a happy hour for adults. And he looked at me, and he said, you know what, you're right. And we talked about my desire to quit drinking, and... uh, and uh, we were joined very soon by my assistant principal, who was one of these guys that after every athletic event went out with the coaches and they, they cried in their beer if they lost and they celebrated in their beer if they won. And uh, he was talking, he says, oh, I could never give that up. But you know what, a week later, a week later the, the, my guidance director came to me and he said, you know that conversation we had with Gary? And I said, yes, I remember it very well. He was very much convicted of his alcohol abuse and his sworn off alcohol. And I don't espouse abstinence as a required way of life for Christians. But ladies and gentlemen, it's a hedge for me around the use of alcohol. For me, it's a hedge around the use of alcohol. And each one of you has to determine where that hedge is. And as an elder in the church, we should not linger over the cup. We should not seek that little buzz or become a little tipsy when our use of alcohol. It can be a significant disqualifier in the community if we are known in the community to be an abuser of alcohol. The last, uh, number nine, is this uh, area of temper. Um, it's, uh, it's the ability of an elder to be able to disagree with a, a, a congregant and leave them with their ego and personality intact. It's the ability to say to them, You know what? We both may be wrong, but we both can't be right. And to be able to understand that we have in certain areas of uh, theology, we have certain areas where there's room to have differences and discussion. Years ago, the Free Church, uh, of which I am a member, uh, had a a yearly ministerial meeting where we got together and we talk about significant theological issues. And the free church was struggling about whether to take the premillennial clause out of their doctrinal statement. And this was being met with a certain degree of resistance on the part of the membership. And so what they had was they had four noted scholars uh, come and speak to us about various eschatological views about the millennial kingdom. We had Dr. Elliot Johnson, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and Darrell Bach, a professor of New Testament theology and scripture. We had uh, Dr. Douglas Moo, who was a Ph.D. Ph.D. director at Wheaton University, and we had a guy by the name of De- uh, Greg Beale, uh, who is also a professor of theology at Wheaton College. All four of these men represented different views, and they got up there and presented their views, and each one was given an opportunity to rebut the other. And then we had open questions. And one, one of the wonderful things we had was we had four separate, diverse views on the Millennial Kingdom, and all four of these from people who used the Bible to defend themselves, and all four of them uh, had a tremendous camaraderie, friendship, and, uh, and, and uh, a relationship one to another, And we had had an opportunity to discuss openly and honestly these different views within the confines of Christian fellowship. And there's room for that. There's room for that. But there can be no room for an elder who is going to use his temper and his anger and frustration as a tool or a wedge to to, uh, to win an argument. It's an opportunity for him not to be violent, but to be gentle and not quarrelsome. Not going around looking for arguments or picking uh, uh, doctrinal fights in order to be able to be able to prove his points. Lastly, the, uh, the, the 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 one one of the last ones is the attitude towards money, not a lover of money. First Timothy six says that a person is a lover of money and then they become it's the root of all evil, and so we need to understand that the uh, the the Bible here says that it's it's service first. And if there's a compensation, that comes later. The first thing we talk about is the calling to ministry and the opportunity and the insights and the desire to lead. And somewhere down the line, if there's compensation, it gets entered into in the conversation. But it's not primary, and it never becomes primary. We have also the ability to manage one's household. Now, in the New Testament time, uh, the word household meant differently because uh, families, uh, b- both immediate families and extended families, all kind of lived together. They lived together in the same family home, or they lived together in the same family cluster of homes where they have a courtyard that's shared uh, one to another. And the, the person that was in charge of that household was to manage his household well. And that included not only his, uh, his devotion to his wife but, and his, uh, his ability to be respected by his children. But it also had something to do with his business uh, because many times they were in private, personal businesses. His servants and all the people that were under his authority were supposed to be managed well. Now, in our particular example, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably most proper to say his immediate family, his, his uh, wife and his children. Does he manage them well? This is an important characteristic for an elder because why? Because if he manages them well, he will then manage the household of God well. It stands to reason that if you're good at the one, you'd be also fairly good at the other one. And lastly, 13—not uh, lastly, but 13—is that he's not to be a new convert. A new convert sometimes uh, does not pre- is not prepared. Uh, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you, there's 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 it's it's a burden and a weight to be an elder. It's not an easy job. It should not be something that you rush to because it it puts you uh, on a pedestal in front of the congregation. It gives you authority. It gives you the opportunity to rule. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a tremendous responsibility to be an elder in a church. God will will weigh heavily uh, the accountability uh, that's going to be given to you uh, first of all, for your own Christian life and also for the sake of your flock. It's not something that you run to. So, you don't want this person to be so spiritually immature that they can't consider the cost and understand the, the, the significant ministry and the, and the toll that it will weigh on them. And it's, uh, for a young believer, it's an opportunity for pride to sneak in, just like it did with the devil. And lastly, the reputation in the community. How does the community view this person? Do they have a certain level of respect and, uh, and, uh, and uh, trust for this person? Uh, this is something that we need also to be able to take into consideration. So we have 14 character qualities. Well, 13 and one that is a, uh, a quality that is uh, of an ability to gift and teach. And so develop your checklist. And when the names are presented to you, go before the Lord in prayer. It's, you know, the checklist is not did he invite me for supper? The checklist is not how firm a handshake. The checklist is not do I like him? The checklist is all these biblical character qualities. And if you don't know, then you honestly have to put a question mark. But if you do know, and it's admirable, not something that puts them in a different class, but something that's, something that's pursuable on your part, then that's the kind of a person you want leading your church. That's the kind of a person that Pastor Nick will need to surround him in order to bring him the necessary counsel and advice and wisdom and guidance that he will need to be the kind of shepherd he, this church needs. It's not Pastor Nick. It's not the elders. It's the team working together to shepherd this flock. That's what God has called us to do. That's what God has gifted us to do. And by God's grace, that is what he's been working into the very fiber of our character and that you see exhibited in daily behavior. That is what a church leader is supposed to do. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for being so specific and so detailed about the kinds of things that leadership is supposed to be. Father, we'll talk about the doing next week, but this week we're talking about the being. And Father, thank you that with your church you have raised up godly men to be able to lead and serve and work together in community to be able to accomplish the mission of this church. So Father, we pray your blessing on them, those that are those that uh, will be uh, leaders in our church. We just thank you for them, and we just pray that you will just uh, give us wisdom and discernment to be able to affirm uh, their calling uh, to this noble task. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity it has to instruct us. We pray that we would take it humbly and, uh, and use it um, modestly uh, in our discernment of the next generation of leaders. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.